You may be seated. I love the way that our praise team brings glory to God as we praise Him. Let's worship God today and praise Him with our hands as well. Amen. Amen. Last Monday night, you probably watched the end of March Madness, the end of the Final Four. Uh, two great basketball teams, University of North Carolina and the Kansas uh, State Jayhawks, were fighting that last battle. The Jayhawks came out really, really strong in the first half, uh, nine points to nothing, and they begin the game, and all of a sudden, for some reason, they just go cold. And at the end of the first half, they are down 15 points. And watch this. How in the world can you, how can you do that? And, and then the game starts up again. It's the second half. And as the second half goes, and it seems like Kansas came out, and they kind of regained their focus. The baskets got hot again, and their defense was good. And all of a sudden, they've, they've tied with North Carolina. And as the game goes on and changes uh, lead from point to point in the end, finally at the end of the game, the buzzer sounds, and the Jayhawks have won. They beat North Carolina 72-69. to It was an exciting game. I enjoyed watching that. Now, if you're from Indiana, you know that the enthusiasm, the love for basketball goes a lot deeper than just the NCAA. I mean, come on, Indiana, uh, basketball is ingrained in our lives. That's, that's who, what we are. Who can forget Bobby Knight? I mean, Bobby Knight, come on. He uh, uh, coached at Indiana University, had uh, national championships in 76, 81, and 89. Or 87. Uh, he had nine Big Ten championships the, the 19 years that he was at Bloomington. He was also known for being able to decorate well with folding chairs. You had to be there to understand that one, probably. I graduated from Washington High School in 1974. Uh, I was a part of the Washington Hatchets. That's what we were called, the Washington Hatchets. Whenever we played the Washington Catholic, <laughs> Washington Catholic Cardinals, their mascot was the Cardinal. Ours was the Hatchet, so they would paint this great big sign, and they'd have a Cardinal lying on its back with a hatchet in the forehead. I, I kind of wondered about that, but that's what they did. And when you go into the stadium, the basketball stadium there in Washington, this is a town of 10,000 people, and the stadium holds so 7,100 people. It was huge. It was one of the biggest buildings in town. And there was just this excitement, this electricity. Anytime you walked in, man, you were ready for something great. And basketball in Indiana was just that way. I mean, it was the home of the Zeller boys, Luke and Tyler and Cody. Uh, they led Washington High School to state championships while they were playing there. They went on to play for university. Universities, uh, one for Notre Dame, one for North Carolina, and one for IU. And then all three of them went on to get NBA contracts with uh, NBA teams. It was great to watch them play. Whenever we were playing basketball, and, and I never played, my brother Tim played, but anytime we'd go to a game, I, I mean, the, the stadium was always packed. It was standing room only, it seemed like. And we would yell and scream, and our voices would be lost. And, and in the days that I was in school, we had uh, no divisions. There wasn't class one, two, and three, four. It was just everybody was for themselves. And uh, it, it, when we won the sectional, then we went to play the regional there in Washington. And if we won the regional, we got out of school the next day. It was, it was awesome. I, I loved that part of it. I think it was best described by Todd Lancaster. He's a writer for the Washington Times-Herald. He had this to say about Washington or about Indiana high school basketball. He said, in Davis and Martin counties, and, and Washington was in Davis County. It was Bar Reeve in Davis County. It was in Davis County. Yeah, Bar Reeve's in Davis. Tyson and I went to two different high schools, Washington and, and Montgomery, uh, Bar Reeve, and we were always better. Actually, Bar-Reeve has been beating up on Washington the past several years. It's really kind of sad. He writes, in Davis and Martin counties, winter Friday and Saturday nights are still about rituals. People still have dinner, then pull back seats out of the closet and drive to a place where just walking through the door stimulates the senses. Memories are made, collected, and displayed in the hatchet house, the cougar den, 
the Kavanaugh Court, Jack Butcher Arena, and the Bird Cage, the Larry Bird Cage. In each venue, high school basketball fans watch their children, neighbors, and classmates participate in a dance that has been choreographed for decades. These are the places where 84 feet of hardwood provide the canvas for community dreams to flourish with the swish of a net or to be shattered by a 16-year-old forgetting to box out. These are the temple where folks still faithfully practice the religion of high school basketball in the highest order. And communion can come in the form of popcorn and Mountain Dew. This is still basketball in southwestern Indiana as it was and as it is and seemingly as it will be now and forevermore. I'm, I'm thinking that maybe a little bit of that unbridled passion of Indiana basketball is something what we saw the day that Jesus came into Jerusalem that final week of his life in that time that we call the triumphal entry. Matthew records the event this way. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him and others cut palm branches from the trees and spread them on the ground, on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David, blessing on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in highest heaven. And the entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this? they asked. And the crowds replied, It's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Man, can you sense it? Can you feel it? Do you feel the electricity that's there, the, the, the sense of urgency, the fever pitch that's going on? They took palm branches, we read. This wasn't the first time that palm branches had been used in celebration of some type of victory. In 164 B.C., the Jews rededicated the temple, and they put palm branches out. In 141 B.C., the Jewish nation was granted independence, full independence again, and so they used these palm branches and waved them as a sign of victory. Even as late as A.D. 135, palm branches were stamped on their coins to signify some type of victory, some type of, of, of winning. And here again, palm branches are being waved as the Messiah comes in. The NIV reads it this way. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. They're quoting Psalm 118. Hosanna means save us now, great Messiah. Oh, save us now. And they're more concerned about the saving of their nation than they are about the saving of their souls. They're not concerned about that part. They just want, they want Israel to be redeemed. Jesus, you've waited so long. Now was the time to unleash that divine power and get Rome out of her backyard. That's what we're expecting you to do, Jesus. Just like Moses led the Israelites out of bondage from Egypt. Jesus, we're expecting you to lead, to lead the Israelites, lead the Jews in a victory over your Roman oppressors. Now, they had it right in their belief that Jesus was the Messiah, but they had it wrong in what kind of deliverer he was going to be. The crowds were expecting Jesus to walk this road to victory, to a new nationalism, to the restoration of Israel as a great nation, as a great, great, uh, a great dominant power. But the eyes of Jesus were set on something else. It was set on, on the cross, on Calvary. Luke chapter 9 says, As the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely, he fixed his eyes toward Jerusalem. See, Jesus did not come to liberate a nation from the tyranny of the Romans. He came to liberate people from the tyranny of Satan. That's what he did then. That's what he does today. And that's what we proclaim, that Jesus releases us from the, the, the tyranny, the bondage of Satan himself. When Jesus made that triumphal entry into Jerusalem, 
He came not only as the human son of Mary and Joseph, but he also came as the Logos, the very word of God himself. John writes in chapter 1, In the beginning, the word Jesus already existed. The word Jesus was with God, and the word Jesus was God. He existed, Jesus existed in the beginning with God. There are powerful and personal implications to the fact that Jesus is the word of God. And what are those? They're for us today. And number one is this, the word of God is progressing. It is making a forward movement. That's what the word of God is doing. It is moving forward. It's progressing. My grandkids are coming in today. I am excited about this. I've not seen my grandchildren since January 2021. That's a long time. That's been a, a year and, and three or four months or so. Deanne is thrilled about this happening, and I'm glad they're going to come in. And my grandkids are all growing. Uh, Sophia uh, just will, will, turn, will turn 17. Uh, that's her on the end. will turn 17 the end of this month. Uh, Ezra, the one on the far end, just turned 8. And, and Titus will turn 12 in July. But that's what we expect to happen. They're supposed to grow up, aren't they? They're supposed to get older and grow and get tall and get strong and mature and, and do all those things. Uh, Titus, the one there, he's, he's going to grow up to be, I'm sure, a herpetologist. He jumps down in the water and grabs snakes and brings them up out of the water and says, this is neat, Grandpa, let me show you this. While it's wrapping around his arm, biting him, the crazy kid. He gets that from his dad, not from me. You see, just as the Word of God makes a powerful progression when Jesus came into Jerusalem, it needs to make a powerful progression in our life as well. Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead and shaken the foundation of the world as Lazarus came out. There, Lazarus has been in the tomb already four days. His body would have been starting to decompose. And yet Jesus calls him forth and he walks out, still in his grave clothes, but alive. Skin is good. And he's been victorious over death. Now this Messiah, this Savior, this King makes a forward movement toward his goal, which is the redemption of men and women by their crucifixion. Let me make this a little bit more personal. We understand the history of this, but how does that apply to us, this forward movement? Is the Word of God making progress in your life? That's the question. Is it making progress? I don't, I don't mean that your love for Jesus, I, I pray that that grows every day. But what about the written Word itself? Is the gospel of Jesus Christ making a difference in your life, changing how you make decisions, how we look at others? Does it influence our character, our morals? Has it, has it adjusted our, our worldview? You see, the real struggle that we face as believers is that we tend to view Christianity, we divine Christianity through the lens of a, of a humanistic worldview instead of discerning the culture that we live in through the lens of biblical and scriptural worldviews. Instead of following the objective truth of God, we, we tend to allow the subjective truth of our culture to dominate the way that we think and what we decide and what we do. Even in the day of Jesus, when he preached, his words were not popular with his crowd. In John chapter 6, he's preaching, he's teaching his disciples. And he's saying, I am the true bread, I'm the bread of life. He uses those phrases. In a, in a metaphorical sense, he said, uh, you will eat my body. In a metaphorical sense, he said, you will drink my blood. And there were those in the crowd who were having a hard time with this. As a matter of fact, many of his disciples said, this is very hard to understand. How can anyone accept it? Now, Jesus was aware that his disciples were complaining, so he said to them, does this offend you? Does it offend you? Is this that hard? In my office, I have a little bitty book called $3 Worth of God, written by Wilbur Rees. And the author 
writes in response to what Jesus said here. Your speech is offensive, Lord. If you have to speak the truth, why can't you soften it a bit for delicate ears and tender taste? Reality is vulgar. We hide our garbage in plastic cans and bury our our cesspools beneath our lawns. We cover our sweat with aerosol spray and our bourbon breath with peppermint. When you speak, Jesus, take a lesson from the professionals. Turn on the background music and avoid naked honesty as you would obscenity. Call sin an inadequate perception. Call the morgue a slumber room. You see, fish don't enjoy reading seafood menus, nor do canaries enjoy movies about cats. If you insist on stating the truth, you may run out of an audience. He did. There were those that left him. Are you making progress in the Word? Is it making progress in your life? But are you making progress in it as well? Are you making forward progress? Are you spending meaningful time in the study of God's Word? The psalmist encourages us by saying, I've hidden your Word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Paul proclaimed to the church in Rome by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of this good news about Christ because it is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew and also the Gentile. And then to Timothy, he encouraged him by saying, listen, all scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired by God. It's useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong. It teaches us what is right. God uses it to prepare and to equip his people to do every good work. The desire of the leadership of Greenville First Christian Church, the staff of Greenville First Christian Church, is for you to grow deep in God's word. That's a part of our three-year plan, to grow young, to grow, to, reach, to grow out, and to grow deep. We want you to know the Bible more today than you did yesterday. And there are several opportunities for you to be able to do that. Adult Sunday school classes happen every Sunday. Are you involved in one? If not, why not? Small group, Bible study, prayer groups, daily reading. Tyson encourages us every day to be reading this month out of the book of Mark. Are you doing that? Jesus, the word, pushed toward his ultimate goal of sacrifice, resurrection, and redemption. At the same time, are we pursuing the truth of God's word? Are we allowing it to change us to make us more like Jesus? Now, let me tell you, when we're doing that, when we're learning and we're reading and, and we're putting into practice what we know, and we begin to speak out this truth that God is love, and God uh, has sent his son Jesus to redeem us, there will be pushback. Not everybody wants to hear this message. In Luke chapter 19, the event that happened that we're talking about today is recorded this way. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. They were calling him King, Hosanna, Messiah. He replied, if they keep quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. I find this admonishment from the religious leaders and the response of Jesus both amazing and entertaining and amusing at the same time. You see, the Pharisees were pushing back against Jesus as Messiah. Jesus, rebuke your followers. They shouldn't be calling you Messiah. They shouldn't be calling you king. That's not, he wasn't at all what the Pharisees were expecting is not what they were wanting. He disregards the Jewish customs, they said. He doesn't honor the Sabbath. He doesn't toe the party line. He doesn't, he, he doesn't uh, uh, keep the status quo. He eats with sinners, they said. I love the response from Jesus. Even if the crowds don't say anything, the rocks, the stones on the ground will shout. 
What Jesus was saying was an inanimate creation. This rock knows more about the purpose of God, knows more about the purpose of Jesus and why he's here than the religious leaders do today. That's a big put down, but he was exactly right. Habakkuk 2 says, The very stones and the walls cry out against you, and the beams and the ceilings echo the complaint. Even this world knew why Jesus came. He came to redeem it as well. When we proclaim Jesus as Lord, there will be pushback. You may have seen this article not long ago. A young lady by the name of Maggie DeYoung, I think is how she pronounced the last name, is a three-year grad student at SIU in Edwardsville. She received a notice from the administration that she was not to have contact with three other students, students that she had known for a long time. She was not to have contact with them either on or off campus. Now, Maggie is a Christian young lady. And the question is, why would the university issue an educational equivalent of a restraining order against her? Now, the only thing that DeYoung could figure out was in the email she received from a school that upon information and belief that interactions between yourself and the other students would not be welcome or appropriate at this time. There had been no previous complaints. She had no way to defend herself. She had been friends with these very students that she is now prohibited from having any interaction with. Uh, Tyson Langhofer, who is um, a senior counsel at the Alliance Defending Fund, Freedom Fund, stated that Maggie had been singled out by her professors, by her fellow students, and criticized because of her Christian beliefs, telling her that her beliefs are wrong, they're insensitive, and they're contrary to the values of the program in which she's enrolled. Langhofer went on to say, Parents, you need to understand the culture that your children are going into. Many public universities will be hostile to their Christian beliefs, their Christian worldview. They'll experience hostility. Parents, you need to understand that, they ought to, that you need to equip your students, your children, with knowledge and with courage. Now, that ought not to surprise anybody. I mean, if you, if you read the newspaper and understand what the church deals with all the time, we shouldn't be surprised at this. For many years now, a lot of our major, uh, major universities have always been pushing back against the gospel for a long time. As a matter of fact, Paul told Timothy, there's a time coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. It sounds like today, doesn't it? They'll follow their own desires and look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They'll reject the truth and they'll chase after stories, after myth, after, after lies. It is sad and it's frustrating and aggravating when the world pushes so hard against the church. But to me what is even sadder is when pushback comes from the church itself. Yes, there are times when the church even pushes back against the gospel. Please allow me to share with you lovingly but also truthfully. There are times when we don't do a very good job of being the bride of Christ. We end up dragging the bride through the mud. Several years ago, I was working for Christ and Youth. This was back in the very late 70s. I was associate director evangelist of our team, and we were stationed in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, it was made up of two young people from Atlanta Christian College, a, a young a guy and a girl, and then another young lady who had graduated from Milligan College. And so there were the four of us, and we called our team Image. I-M-A-G-E, that was the name of her team. When we were down in South Florida getting ready to go to a week of church camp, we stopped at a big mall. We wanted to get T-shirts made with the name Image on the front of it. So we walked through this mall. There was a T-shirt 
kiosk out there in the middle. We told the young lady what we wanted, so she got the shirts and, and started printing them on the front. While she's doing that, Mike and I are looking at other t-shirts hanging on display, and we're pulling them back, and there comes a shirt with something on the front of it that, from a world perspective, was funny, not so much from a Christian viewpoint. But we looked at it, and we smiled at each other, and then shoved other shirts in front of it. We went back to the young lady. She had just finished our shirts. What kind of a group are you, she asked. What do you do? I said, well, we're, we're a Christian group of, of people. We go to camps and churches, and we talk about Christ, and, and we hope to be able to, uh, to share Jesus and the gospel with, with young folks. And she said, you know, I thought that's what you were until I saw you look at that shirt. And then I thought, well, you just must be some other kind of group. Talk about being convicted. And what was worse, went to that church camp that afternoon, and sometime through the week I had my shirt on, and this little girl comes up, and she sees the letters I-M-A-G-E. She said, oh, I make a good example. I didn't then. I didn't on that day. And I will have to stand before God and give an account of why I failed him at that point. My salvation is not in jeopardy, but certainly God was disappointed with my, my brokenness and my giving in to temptation at that time. The thing is, all of us will have to do this. All of us will have to give an account for the things that we say, the things that we do. Especially when we've dragged the bride of Christ through the mud. It pains me at times to read what I read on Facebook or to see what I see in our community when I, I know there are times that we as believers are not living well to our calling. Let me challenge you with this. The next time that you feel the need to vent or to complain or to call out whatever it may be and you're sitting at the keyboard and you're getting ready to put this on Facebook, ask yourself this question. Is what I'm going to type does it glorify God? Will God be honored? And when I am done writing this, will the person that I'm sending this to or anybody reading this, will they be lifted up and encouraged? The Apostle Paul said, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Is what we're saying, what we're doing, the decisions we make, does it benefit others? Does it build them up? Does it glorify God? If it does, praise God. If it doesn't, then maybe we should hold back and rethink. Now, the encouraging truth about all this is, even when we fail, the gospel still prevails. The gospel still wins. I, I love it when Tyson says that whenever we're looking at the Bible and we go to Scripture, always know the gospel wins. And it does. The, the gospel prevails. Next week, we're going to celebrate that truth as Tyson speaks to us about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But there are other examples in Scripture as well where we see the gospel pushing forward, pushing against the tide of resistance. When we, when we read John's account of the triumphal entry, it says, Many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. That was the reason so many went to meet him, because they'd heard about this miraculous sign. And the Pharisees said to each other, There's nothing we can do. Look, the whole world, everyone has gone after him. Man, that's encouraging, isn't it? When the gospel is preached, the whole world goes after it. At least some of it does, and some of it was happening in this day. 
In another account, we read in Acts chapter 17, Paul and Silas are, are speaking. They're preaching in a particular town, but they're being threatened, and so they're trying to get their way out of town. The text says, not finding them there, those that wanted to harm Paul and Silas, not finding them there, they dragged out Jason and some other believers instead and took them before the city. Paul and Silas have caused trouble all over the world. The RSV says they have turned the world upside down, and now they're, they're disturbing our city too. Turned the world upside down. You, you see, it's the message of God's love, the salvation that's offered by Jesus, the indwelling and the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, and a hope that changes everything that turns the world on its head. That's what the gospel does. And when it's proclaimed and when it's preached and when it's lived out well, it turns the world upside down. There's one more great example, and, and to me this is so powerful. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus has asked his followers, asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some say that you're John the Baptist. Maybe Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Jesus said, yeah, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, he just picks right up and said, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus said, Peter, you're correct. And he said, now I say that you are Peter, which means small stone. And upon this rock, which is a big truth, a big rock, that statement he had just made, I will build my church. And all the powers of hell, the gates of Hades, will not prevail, will not conquer it. Anytime we look at the word Hades, it typically means death or the abode of the dead, not necessarily hell in its permanent eternity of, of, of pain. And death, we know, is a result of that first sin that we read about in Scripture when Adam and Eve decided to sin against God. Death comes for all of us unless Jesus comes before that happens. And when you read about gates, you're normally thinking about gates as something that keeps somebody out and keeps somebody in. It is something of a defensive measure that we use. However, Jesus is telling Peter and the church this. The power of the church is not defensive. The power of the church is offensive. Even the very gates of death, the gates of hell, will not stop the forward movement of the church. That message of salvation, that message of redemption, that message of, of grace burst through even death itself. And we live victoriously. This is the reason Paul encouraged the church by saying, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Even death, even the grave, cannot hold us. I love this story that I oftentimes use at the close of a service of a funeral. Stephen Brown is a Christian author, a minister. He talks about his brother Ron who died of a heart attack. He said in his 40s, Ron was a popular public servant, a superb district attorney. He was a good father and Stephen's closest friend. A few days after, after Ron had died, after he was buried, Stephen went to the cemetery to visit that grave. It was one of those cold and, and rainy days that kind of chill you right to the bone. And when he got to the cemetery, he couldn't find his brother's grave. There were, the stone had not yet been set and other graves had been freshly dug. As he stood there in the cold and the rain, Stephen Brown began to cry. He said, God, this has been the worst month of my life, and now I can't even find my brother's grave. But Stephen wrote later, Jesus doesn't visit cemeteries, but he did that day. 
He said, I knew there was a presence, the presence of one I had almost forgotten in all of my grief and the grief of my family. Jesus came and he said, why are you seeking the living among the dead? The words from the master came to that brokenhearted minister, and he has never returned to the cemetery since. He knows the cemetery is not Ron's home. Ron is alive because Jesus is alive. Folks, the cemetery is not your final resting place. It isn't mine. And because of the forward movement, the progressing, prevailing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, heaven is my home. And that's where I'm going. Jesus is on the road to the cross, on the road to Calvary. The road didn't take him to fame and wealth and fortune and popularity and notoriety. It didn't put him in the NCAA Hall of Fame. It didn't win him an Oscar or Grammy or an Emmy. It didn't put him in a Fortune 500 club. It didn't make him CEO of Google. It didn't do any of those things. And those who cheered his entry in Jerusalem, some of them were expecting the rise of a national hero, a, a new five-star general that's going to restore the nation of Israel. But that's not why Jesus came. Luke 19 tells us why. The Son of Man came to seek and to save those who were lost. Jesus came to seek and to save those who were lost. Have you ever been lost? Scary thing, isn't it? Years ago, when, when our children were quite a bit younger, we met Deb's mom and dad at a restaurant in Carbondale at the mall. And after we got done eating, we were standing out in the mall area, and, and Deanne was probably five or six, something like that. Thank you, Deanne. You should, she said she was five. And, uh, and there's a penny arcade right next door to where we were standing, and she walked in because love the lights and the bells and all those kind of things. And I'm watching her go in, and, and she's just watching what's going on, and I turn around, talk to the family, and turn back again, and I don't see her. Well, I walk into the arcade and discover that it has a U-shaped room, and it comes back out again into the mall a little ways down. She had gone all the way around and walked out in the mall and walked away from us. Well, as you can imagine, Deb and I were in a panic. We called mall security, and they had people on the top of the building with, sun, with, with binoculars looking around. They had mall security walking through looking for this little girl, and I told Deb, I've, I've got to go look. I have to search myself. And so I took off down one hall and then another, and I, I came down one hall, and I see this little blonde-headed girl pop out of a music store. And she looks up at me, and she says, Daddy, found you, like I was the one that was lost. She found me. Jesus, Jesus is looking for you today. And if you're lost, he's searching. Now, he knows where you are. It's not like he is blind to where you happen to be sitting. But he's calling you. He's, he's seeking you. He's calling you to come, to surrender your life to his lordship, to surrender your will to his will, to know and, and to live and to Bask in the, the love and the grace that is his. If you have that today, you know what a joy that is because the power of the gospel has prevailed in your life. But if not, why not allow, why not allow Jesus to prevail against the gates of hell itself, bursting into your life and bringing you salvation and redemption? This morning, maybe you need to step up and say, hey, I've held off long enough. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, and I want to surrender my life to his. 
If you want to do that today, Tyson's here, I'm here, we'd be ready to take that confession of faith. The, the waters in the baptistry are ready for you to come and, and to, uh, uh, to be obedient to his teaching this way. Maybe as an immersive believer, you're just looking to partner with the church and saying, hey, I want to, I want to partner with you all in ministry, and we'd love to have your uh, uh, statement that way as well. Maybe you just need somebody to pray with you to help you move forward in faith, forward in the gospel. Whatever that is, why don't you stand? We're going to pray, and then we're going to sing a hymn of invitation. Why don't you come? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we've been able to spend in your word this morning. It is convicting, but it's supposed to be. But it's also encouraging. It's uplifting. And, Father, it is... It is reminding us again of the salvation that we have in Jesus as an assured present possession. Father, it is ours today, not in fullness, but Father, it's there. And one day we will have that in its fullness as we spend eternity with you. Father, I pray that if there are any today in this room who are lost and they're looking, Father, may they find you. May they listen to your voice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.